Hello, this is Pearls on Tuesday, where we aim to create and celebrate the beauty of ordinary moments in extraordinary ways. Today is part number two of Stories and Traditions, A Very Virginia Christmas, compiled and edited by Wilford Kale. I live in southeastern Virginia and purchased this book many years ago and enjoy reading it each and every year. I hope you will too. I will begin with the inside cover. Just about everyone has a special memory of Christmas and the holiday season. It may involve an unexpected gift, a family tradition, or a special event. Virginians have been making these memories for more than 400 years. In this volume, noted Virginia writer Wilford Kale has collected some of the best Virginia Christmas memories and traditions. In wartime and peace, and from times of need to those of feasting, Virginians have always found ways to celebrate the holidays. You will discover what Christmas was like for Captain John Smith, George Washington, or Booker T. Washington. Share memories of Virginia Christmases from the Eastern Shore and South Side to the Shenandoah and the mountains of Appalachia. Learn of Virginia's first Christmas tree and William and Mary's Yule log. Remember the magic of Miller and Rhodes' legendary Santa and the Richmond Christmas pageant. As you read, you'll share family feasts, discover the origins of some of Virginians' favorite experiences, and enjoy the variety of celebrations over the centuries. Today's story is by Park Rouse, Jr., and it is entitled Christmas on the South Side. The White River Boat rounds the bend of Pagan Creek, blows for a landing, and then slows as she approaches the dock. On the wharf, against a warehouse stored with Smithfield hams and peanuts, Wharf hands stand by to catch the mooring lines. With a great churning of creek water, the S.S. Smithfield reverses her engines and slows her sidewise crawl toward the dock. Then, in a flash, mooring lines are thrown from ship to shore. From the dockside, friends and kinsmen peer alertly at the riverboat's passengers in search of city cousins coming to spend Christmas in the farms and villages south of the James River in Virginia. A proud father on the steamer lifts his five-year-old for waiting relatives to admire. My, but he's grown, an aunt shouts from the dock as the gangway is rolled into place and passengers begin to surge ashore. Thus it began, the magic of Christmas in the country. In the simpler days when Woodrow Wilson sat in the White House, riverboats carried many holiday homecomers to the farms 
which lay along the East Coast's rivers, running inland from the Atlantic. In retrospect, they now seem splendidly romantic days, for bridges and automobiles would soon replace the white Gothic River steamers and the horse-drawn vehicles which met them at the dock. Never since in America has life seemed quite so leisurely. The arrival of the boat was Smithfield's chief weekday diversion in those days. Her here I come toot at Red Point at 527 each afternoon was a signal to Steve Doors, farmers, and the idly curious to amble to the wharf and see just who and what came in that day from Norfolk or Newport News. The skipper, Captain Gordon Delk, was the idol of every child in town. He and his ship were Little Smithfield's link with the glamorous world of department stores and movie houses, which lay across the wide James River and Hampton Roads. To the homecoming stranger, Smithfield offered a fragrant welcome. The whitewashed smokehouses along Pagan Creek exuded the hickory scent of a century of ham curings. The warehouses of Mr. Pembroke, Decanter, Gwaltney, and Colonel Charles F. Day bulged with the fall peanut harvest from miles around. Richard Jordan's livery stable added its earthy ambiance, while Shiver's Market displayed in the open air the day's offerings of oysters, rockfish, croakers, and catfish. From Berry Hill Farm, my grandfather had sent Willie Bailey, a strapping farmhand, to load our luggage into the Surrey and drive us to the farm. Strong arms were needed for a horse sometimes bolted when it crossed the clattering wooden drawbridge at Wright's Point. Once or twice when a horse acted skittish, Willie dismounted and led it across. December in Southern Virginia is generally mild, though the sting of winter is usually felt during Christmas week. The last yellow leaves cling to maple and oak, while red berries on the holly warn that cold winds will soon scour the trees. Thick growths of mistletoe are exposed in the crotches of leafless trees, waiting for nimble boys to shinny up and collect them. Rows of cedar trees divide recently dug peanut fields, and pines look black against the pale winter sky. The gaudy profusion of summer is reduced to the cold geometry of fences and roads. In the early 1920s, large flocks of migrating ducks still clustered in the Blackwater Creeks, which drain from Southside Virginia into the James, flying up with a great roar of wings as we approached. Now and then a rabbit or fox would dart across the sandy road, startling the horses. Then we reached Berry Hill. There in the yard stood Grandfather calling out, Dismount! Dismount! 
Grandmother was at his side, her thin white hair pulled upward and pinned in a knot. Close behind came uncles, aunts, a profusion of cousins, and the black farm boys, Willie Boy and Albert, who were dear friends and constant companions of my brothers and me. It was years later before we knew my grandfather had paid them to watch us and teach us to ride and hunt. At first, Willie Boy and Albert could only stand and grin, but their embarrassment left them when the grown-ups turned us loose to play outside. How many things there are to do in a week on the farm. We learn to eat persimmons. No good till the first frost hits them. To catch rabbits in a baited poke. To curry horses. To ride bareback and with a saddle. To find the eggs of renegade hens. We milked a cow. Caught bull gudgeons in the creek. And did a thousand other things some useful, some destructive. If the weather turned cold, we sometimes helped with hog killing, though one bloody experience was usually enough. To make short work of it, all the men from the farm's half-dozen tenant families worked from sunrise to sunset to kill, scald, cut up, and salt the hogs, which had been raised the preceding summer. They were amazingly skillful, for Southside Virginians have perfected hog raising and curing since their fertile lands were first settled by Englishmen a few years after Virginia was born in 1607. Once the men had done their work, my grandmother directed the hired women in the making of sausage, cracklings, and the heavy gray soap which they compounded of hog fat, lye, and other ingredients. With the hams and shoulders of the hogs dressed, my grandfather had them treated in the time-honored Smithfield fashion. First, they salted them in a large pot and covered them a day or so in brine. Then the hams and shoulders were cleaned, oiled, and hung in a draft. The procedure is similar to what the Roman writer Cato the Elder described in his De Re Rustica, written 249 years before the birth of Christ and discovered by Miss Bess Wright, a retired professor living in Smithfield. On the third day, old Cato wrote, take them down, rub them with a mixture of oil and vinegar, and hang them in the meat house. Neither moths nor worms will touch them. After this treatment came, the process of smoking the meat over a steady smoky fire in a curing house. This was accomplished with green hickory logs, which had been cut and stored outside the old brick smokehouse to await their hour of need. The hickory smoke smell of winter at Berry Hill will always remind me of Christmas. While we youngsters were enjoying the outdoors. The ladies, for several days, prepared a memorable Christmas feast. In those days, getting ready for Christmas primarily meant cooking for prepared foods did not exist. The big wood stove in the kitchen was kept busy from morning until night for days at a time. Fruit cakes and plum puddings must be made and aged in brandy. Smoked hams must, must be soaked and baked. 
black walnuts must be shelled for cakes, and hard sauce must be made of butter, powdered sugar, and brandy. The jobs were endless. A holiday ritual, then as now, was the cheering cup before sitting down to dinner. Southerners called it a toddy and made it usually of corn whiskey or bourbon, water, and a teaspoonful of sugar. At Berry Hill, a Victorian shibboleth prevailed against women drinking. Therefore, my grandfather invited only the menfolk to gather in his room before dinner to quaff the welcome mixture before an open fire. A grandson had to be well along in college before being welcomed to the group. Traditions in Christmas fair differ from house to house, but in Southern Virginia in 1920, a Christmas dinner always included more food than any mortal could do justice to. At Berry Hill, a ham graced my grandfather's end of the table and a goose at my grandmother's. Between them ranged such heavenly temptations as creamed sweet potatoes, baked tomatoes, creamed onions, corn pudding, watermelon rind pickle, green tomato relish, homemade pickle, cornbread, hot rolls, and whatever else came to my grandmother's mind. With so many to be fed at once, Christmas at Berry Hill filled the big dining room with tables and chairs, though grandmothers and Calvinist households might make the youngsters wait for a second sitting. It was good discipline. My kindly grandmother would not hear of such inhumanity. She insisted that all the family sit down for one blessing, adults at one table and children at another. With Addie and Mary Polly in the kitchen, a relay constantly shuttled new provender to the tables. As with any holiday feast, dessert was an important part of Christmas dinner at Berry Hill. Much advanced work went into the mixing and baking of fruitcakes, which were soaked with brandy and placed with an apple to provide moisture while they aged for several weeks in the basement cool room. Another favorite was frozen custard made up of cream, milk, many eggs, sugar, and vanilla. Frozen in a large ice cream freezer just before dinner, it was dished out and rushed on trays from freezer to table to prevent melting in the warm dining rooms. Once, when the freezer broke, a farmhand valiantly transferred the mixture to a lard tin, half-submerged this in a wash bucket of ice and brine, and vigorously turned it a half hour with his hands until it froze. Addie explained that this was the way poor people made their ice cream. Southerners undeniably have a sweet tooth. New Orleans is famous for pralines and pecan pies and Charleston for Huguenot puddings and pastries. Virginia is no exception. In those days before calorie counting clouded our enjoyment of such sweets, our region seemed especially fond of grated sweet potato pudding or pie, made rich with butter and aromatic with bourbon and nutmeg. A showier dessert was tipsy cake or pudding, which had evolved from England's traditional tipsy squire and syllabub, meaning silly stomach, and it's less common today, perhaps because few of today's cooks have the leisure to make sponge cake, blanch almonds, make brandy or cherry-flavored custard, and whip the heavy cream which tops this heavenly mound. 
Such chores call for abundant kitchen help. The holiday week between Christmas and New Year's Day brought many other pleasures. Quail from one day's hunt turned up as next day's breakfast. Squirrels were boiled under tender and combined in Brunswick stew, a Brunswick County concoction of vegetables and meat stock with cured pork for seasoning. The classic Berry Hill breakfast was lean slices of Smithfield shoulder fried in a skillet with scrambled eggs and served with egg bread. Spoon bread and hominy grits usually accompany fried ham in the Deep South, but were not common in Virginia until recently. Another smokehouse product was link sausage called dandoodles, which when aged became so strong and hard that they had to be parboiled before being split and fried. Its ugliness was deceptive. Berry Hill's kitchen was fortunately housed in a long wing of the house, an early American practice to prevent the spread of kitchen fires and the heat and odors of cooking. So the Berry Hill kitchen could safely indulge some of the family's taste for the malodorous and often maligned salted herring. Caught by Chesapeake Bay net fishermen each spring, these row-bearing fish were cured in brine and smoked before making their way to the table in autumn. A night soaking in water, sometimes with several changes, was necessary to desalt them for the skillet, where they sizzled and popped dangerously until ready to be borne into the dining room amid mixed cheers and protests. The time-honored New Year's Day meal in some Southern Virginia and North Carolina households is black-eyed peas and hog jowl, which Southern soothsayers say brings good luck in the months to come. This cherished dish was never evident at Berry Hill, nor was collard greens, which are often served with such soul food. Instead, New Year's breakfast brought us goose hash and waffles, or calves' brains and eggs. Whatever it might be, it was rich, delicious, and abundant. In those days, it seemed the right and proper way to enjoy Christmas. It was always with sadness that we bade Willie Boy and Albert farewell on the afternoon of New Year's Day. Then, as we waved goodbye to my grandparents while they stood smiling and beckoning from the porch, no doubt exhausted but still enthusiastic, we rode down the lane towards town and the waiting steamer. Now, many, many years later, the smell of hickory smoke coming from an open hearth brings Christmas at Berry Hill vividly back to me. The deer faces, the riverboat, the Surrey, now all long gone, but happy memories from childhood survive undimmed. You might also want to listen to part one of the reading of A Very Virginia Christmas, which was Earl Hamner's story, A Christmas Memory. Take good care of you and yours.